Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church excited to be here with you started losing my voice a bit in the uh, first gathering and so pardon me I have some tea up here that uh, my wife made for me to try to drink and help and so if I have to take a moment just give me some grace all right thank you <clears throat> um, for those of you that are uh, joining us maybe for the first week uh, we're coming to a close today in a series that we've been in called uh, the Imago Day and so the Imago Day means the image of God, and the Imago Dei then allows us to understand the reality then that men and women were made distinctly, uh, distinctively men and women now within the, gen- within the fall of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve's original rebellion against the Lord, our skew of what it looks like to be man and woman has changed, and our skew for what those roles can look like have in fact been changed, and the way by which we and others would even identify um, folks are trying to change that as well. And so week one, I laid out all that and unpacked for you. Uh, the Imago Day and the reality that when it comes to things like abortion or uh, social justice issues, uh, racism, poverty, whatever it may be, at the core of that is actually an Imago Day issue. It's looking at someone and saying that I'm actually going to make you in my image instead of you being in the image of God. So that was week one. If you missed that, you can catch it online. And then uh, week two, we looked at biblical masculinity and we Three, we looked at biblical femininity and what does it mean to uh, be female, distinctively a woman and female. And so then this week, uh, what we have slotted is uh, for the single. And so what, is it, what about the singles? And so here, uh, whenever I say single, what I mean is if you were to fill out a legal document, if you are not married, then you are what? Single. Okay, so up in this house, okay, you ain't married in your heart like some would say, okay, just because you've been, we've been together so long, it's as if we were married. That's not the case. You are single. So if you're not married, you're single. If you're engaged, you are single. So I can't stand up here and say that I can relate to all the different varieties of singleness that exist uh, in the room. But what I can say is that you do not, most certainly, do not have to be married to walk out the Imago Day. Heaven forbid, you do not, to be in a re- do not need to be in a relationship to be properly walking out of the Imago Day. You are made in the image of God as male and female to reflect his glory to the cosmos, to the rest of creation. And so for me, this is probably, though, the most difficult sermon uh, out of all of them for me. And I know I preached to women last week, and so that was uncomfortable. But I think this is in some ways uh, a little bit more uh, difficult for me. I have not been, com- I think, I was thinking about this week, I've had a girlfriend of some sort which still means you're single, by the way, boys and girls, okay? It's just, I'm going to get into it in a minute. But I've had a girlfriend of some sort since I was in seventh grade. And so I have had some form of companionship uh, since seventh grade. Now, y'all thought I was needy. My wife knows how needy I am. Now you know, all right? I need a hand. I need your pastor needs a lot of help. Super needy. But with that in mind still, like, I have no idea exactly what you need to hear. Uh, I cannot fully relate to you. 
Uh, as a single, I've been married now for 13 years, engaged for a year and a half. We weren't super Christians yet, so we didn't do a three-month engagement. Um, we dated for about a year, so we've been together for a long time at this point. And so what I am going to do is I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the Spirit and His Word. And October 2021 is when we designed this series. So we've been thinking about this series. We've been processing through it. We've been praying for it off and on. And October 2021 is when we felt led uh, that the Lord would want us to preach 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and 7, aspects of those two chapters. And so uh, we have a saying around here, and that is, when in doubt, preach the text. So I'm just going to preach the text. Amen. And we'll let the Holy Spirit do, do what the Holy Spirit does. Sound good? So I got three points for you, one big idea. The points uh, go as follows. I got the talk. That's about sex. Cat's out the bag, okay? Uh, I went with the talk because the sex, <laughs> the single, and the savior just didn't flow, you know? And I'm just not that Baptist to have an alliteration like that. And so we have the, in quotations, the talk. If you take notes, please make sure you put the quotations on there for me. Thank you. The single, we're going to get into the singles. What does this mean? It talks about the engaged, the widowed, and the single. And then we're going to look at the hope of the gospel and how Jesus' narrative of the gospel, gospel narrative, is the only thing that speaks to both sex and singleness. One big idea for you, we've had all series, and that is you cannot have the kingdom apart from the king. You cannot have the kingdom apart from the king. But I want to tell you, that's exactly what our culture tells you to seek out. All the benefits of the kingdom apart from being in relationship with the king. And so we live in a culture that screams, like, remain single, like, stay single, get all your thrills, get all the benefits of not being married and having multiple partners, and there's a great deal that you can kind of, uh, you can enter into within that world, and it's like your body, you do you, there's no consequence whatsoever to your behaviors. The body is strictly physical, and you can disengage emotionally and just enter into and have as many sexual partners as you'd like. They call that the hookup culture, don't they? There's no consequence, they would say. It's just physical. It's not emotional. It's not that big a deal. And then on the other hand, you have the church over here saying that sex is bad, now go get married. And you're like, well, what do we do with that? Or you have the church over here that will look down upon you if you're not yet married and you are single. And if you're um, not pursuing a relationship, then you have folks in the church body that will look at you and say, well, what's wrong with you? Well, maybe you need to get your relationship with Jesus right first, and then he'll provide for you a spouse, but that is not the gospel, is it? And then you have Jesus right here in the middle, and you, say, you have him saying, just stay devoted to me. Like, pursue me. Find contentment in me. Come and sit with me. Be with me. Pursue me, and the rest of these things will work themselves out. You see, what the culture and the church has a tendency to do is to offer you the kingdom apart from the king. The culture is saying you can have everything that you want that's, that's offered to you in Christ. You can have it. Just go get it while you're here. At the same time, when the church looks at you and says, hey, maybe if you get your relationship right with Jesus, then he'll provide for you, that's a works-based gospel. Matter of fact, it is no gospel at all, is it? It is works righteousness and legalism that is being forced down the throats and into the minds of singles. And so what I want to do is get into this with you. We have the, the talk the single and the hope. Let's start with the talk. When you're ready, uh, say ready. ready. All right, thank you. First Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. Listen here, are profound. Yeah, leave that up if you have it up. It is a profound statement that the Apostle Paul uh, is going 
to make here. Whenever I say profound, what I mean by this is what's been written here in 1 Corinthians 6 has probably never been penned in the history of written literature. Like what he's going to introduce us to here in a moment is not a worldview or a thought that would have existed for the Greco-Roman world. This would have been completely profound for them. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 16 says this, Oh, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, then, so then, like a good pastor here, Paul gives us three examples to kind of prove what he's trying to say or kind of push his point out. And the point then being is sex unites you in body and soul. And whenever he says the, the flesh and the soul and the spirit, he's talking about like a, there's a total uniting that takes place. There's a total bonding that takes place here. So he says being united with a prostitute unites you in body. It's like being united in one flesh as Adam and Eve were told. That's an aspect of the Imago Dei that we've looked at. And, and it's like also like being united with Jesus Christ and spirit and soul. And so the point that Paul makes, that the apostle Paul is making is that Sex not only affects the body, but it does affect the soul. It's not strictly physical, but it's also psychological. And so what Paul says here is profound in his day. And unfortunately, it's found to be profound in our day as well. And so Paul's culture looked just like our culture. And they had sex outside of marriage. That was no big deal. They had temples that they would go into for sex, and they viewed it as a form of worship. Uh, they had same-sex attraction and then action to follow those desires, and they were, cheer they were cheered on for those sorts of things. They're not looked down upon. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, they have men who are dressing like women, and, God, and Paul has to give them, tell them, say, hey, stop doing that, and also, stop having sex with your stepmom, and you're getting drunk off the communion. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Corinth was a jacked-up church. Uh, we get to spend about 20 weeks in Corinth at the end of this year. Not the physical place. You have a bunch of heathens in here. We're like, what? You know, <laughs> trying to go back to college, aren't you? Listen here. There's nothing then. Okay, there's nothing progressive about our culture. If anything, our culture is not progressive at all. It's actually regressive. We're actually going back into what was once very, very very normal. What's interesting about that in light of sexual immorality is that many historians, and not Christian historians, but many historians, secular historians would say that it was the sexual immorality of the culture of their time that led to the demise of Rome. It actually led to Rome being fallen, to falling apart, which if you know anything about the Roman Empire, was the greatest empire that has ever existed in many ways. I mean, they were absolutely incredible, and yet it was having no morality in their led, culture led to their demise. And so then we have to propose the question, what do you think will happen in America if we do not find some morality ourselves? Where do you think we're headed? And so Paul then, understanding this low view of body in his culture, but this high view of the psyche and the intellect, he says, do you not realize that your body becomes like the body of a prostitute, but also so does your mind? So does your psyche. So does everything you are. The two are becoming one flesh. The two are becoming one person, right? There's a giving away of yourself over to this other individual. And so when Paul uses the word flesh, again, he's talking about both the physical and also the psychological that are coming together. There is no separation of soul and body or mind and 
body. This is profound for Paul's culture. I mean, it's been literally the first time they ever heard anything like this. It's crazy. And it's also profound for us. And so the same view of culture that they had in their time is still the same view of culture that we have in our time, isn't it? Uh, I bought, I was given this book. I was, hold on. Someone lent me this book. Sometimes if you give me a book, I act like you gave it to me though. So just know that. And, um, it's going to get written in, and things are going to get folded, and just, I'm sorry, I just forget what I buy and what's given to me. Uh, this is a good book. It's called Love Thy Body uh, by Nancy Piercy. I'll leave it up here if somebody's interested uh, as we get into some of this, if you want to learn more. Uh, but Nancy Piercy is an incredible woman, super theological and gospel-centered, great uh, researcher. In her book, Love Thy Body, quotes and cites uh, numerous research reports that I think are worth getting into and talking about here on a Sunday morning. And so the research that uh, Ms. Piercy gets into is primarily non-Christian research, which means it's not some Christian organization trying to push like a moral agenda as they should or trying to push a gospel-centered agenda. It's strictly secular. That is just like in the world, universities that have done research on the culture of singles and uh, sex. And so what she points out in her book is so profound as it talks about this reality that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6. And she actually lays out like what Paul has mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, we know to be true because we have science. Like we've prog- we have progressed in this way thousands of years to where we have scientific empirical evidence that actually tells us that there are hormones in the body and chemicals in the body. They call them the monogamy hormone and the bonding chemicals of the body that whenever you have sex with someone, you literally begin, your mind psychologically begins then to release chemicals that quite literally bond you to that person. Not just physically, but emotionally. Like the affective dope, the eight, that's with an A, the affective domain is immensely impacted in that moment. And so it's, it, it makes sense then whenever you try to have a culture that says, no, 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 it's just the body. It has nothing to do with your emotions. It makes sense then when they get into the research that these men and women that are super sexually active or sexually active outside of marriage, dude, they feel immediately isolated. They feel immediately alone. They immediately grieve the situation. And it's like research after research after research that says, no, 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 you cannot separate the physical and also the psychological. The culture is talking out of both sides of their mouth. And so, and then also not just physical relationships, church, right? Because what the tendency to, that can happen in this moment is for us to turn in self-righteousness and say, well, I'm not having sex. I'm just watching porn. And so she gets into that the same thing that is true for a physical relationship is also true for a cyber relationship. That the way that someone, male and female, because the statistics reveal it's equal now, that the way that they view pornography and their ongoing pursuit of the experience of pornography literally begins to murder these chemicals in your brain. Like the, the chemical that once produced, like you used to produce buckets of these chemicals to unite you and to bond you and to bound you, knit you with someone, the more and more that you pursue that experience of pornography, it actually diminishes the chemicals. This is why people have to pursue harder and harder and harder forms of pornography because they want to receive, they want to experience this bonding, this being united with someone. It literally begins to rewire your brain. Do you know that the average age now in our country for someone who's viewing pornography when it begins is nine years old. So if you think about that, I'm a dad. I have an eight-year-old. I have a 10-year-old, you know. You think about that for just a minute. From nine years old until you graduate high school, 
You have a decade of killing these bonding molecules in your brain. A decade. Um, It's not a sermon to parents, but it is, isn't it? So research says for those who've been addicted to porn prior to marriage, man, that they tend to prefer pornography over the real physical touch of a man or woman in marriage. Twice as likely to get a divorce. Pornography drives complacency. It drives laziness. It drives discontent. In week one, we talked about, in light of the Imago Day, how pornography can change, um, pushes forward sex trafficking, sex slavery, and all of that. Uh, pornography is the reason, st- statisticians would say, is the reason why many singles remain single. Because the moment that you have to put forth some exertion, like the moment you have to get creative, the moment you have to kind of set and figure out what's going, inside, going on inside of his or her head, it's just so much easier to just go back to the keyboard or to pull your phone out of your pocket. Why give the energy to something that I can find like that? The screen is just easier, they would say. And in that, increased anxiety, increased depression among men and women alike. What is the point, Pastor? What are you trying to get out here? I'm trying to say this, that you're not just engaging in sex in a way that's sinful as a physical exertion, as a physical release. That's not it. The Bible agrees, culture would agree, according to research, and researchers would agree that it is never just physical, it is also simultaneously 100% psychological. And it completely hinders your ability to be able to bond with another human being. So the one who sleeps with a prostitute, Paul says, is bound to her in body and in mind and in spirit. And I would add now in our time, whether she or he is digital or physical, you with me? Bound to her physically and psychologically. Let's continue. Oh, it's not going to show up on the screen. I'm going to read. I want to read some red letter Jesus to you. All right, not on the screen. Still red letter Jesus. All right. You've heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." Okay. You think think that's easy? I don't do that. But then Jesus, you know, being Jesus, says, "But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and we could say man or man, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart." If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out of your face and throw it away. I I inserted your face in there. (laughs) For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If we were to read in Genesis where we started the Imago Dei series, it says there when they were united in one flesh, the Hebrew term there is both physically and psychologically. It's about the mind and the body and the soul. Adam and Eve were united together. Later on, it would say in Genesis, whenever Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bore a son. Also then pushing forth this reality, the sex is both physical and also psychological. And so we live in a culture specifically here in America, that likes to talk out of both sides of his mouth saying things like, no, like sexuality is only physical. It's just about the release. And, they, and then you, what's interesting is you hear that, and that's true, and that's like the mantra of, our, of everything in our culture. Just get on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever you want to get on. It's going to say that, yeah? And at the same time, what the research reveals is that those same men and women that would say that will also say things like, alcohol is the only way I can go through with it. I feel like I'm shutting off my mind and I'm just a shell of a human being. I'm ridden with guilt and shame. And so on one hand, you have, yeah, it's your body, go do whatever you want. And then on the other hand, you have all of the consequences that have come. 
So who should we follow, church? Should we follow the culture and the cultural norm, or perhaps should we stick to the Word of God? For those of you that may be college age or have college students, it's no wonder that the top two prescriptions on a college campus are birth control and antidepressants. It's a sad reality that men and women are brought into, yeah? I think it's worth saying there's a good Jesus and a great Savior that just desires more for you than that. Like, I want to bump on, but I also just want to be like, what you have experienced, it's just, to say it's less doesn't hold a candle to what I actually want to say. It's just so much lesser than what a perfect father had in store for his son and daughter. As a, son, as a daddy, it's just hard to read the number one prescriptions are birth control and antidepressants. My kids are headed that direction towards college anyway. And so when Paul told his culture that sex infiltrated both body and soul, man, they would have been shocked whenever they heard that. Many of you are shocked in this room, perhaps, because you've been sold alive. But the first thing then that Paul says is sex matters and it's more than physical. And then the second thing that Paul says is it's actually not about sex at all. He says you could abstain from that. Don't have sex unless you're married. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2 says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, okay, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so this is tricky here because uh, churches across the globe have taught to the single specifically, they'll say something like, hey, uh, sex is bad, sex is no good, sex is dirty, sex is foul, now go get married and enjoy your wedding night. You filthy animals. You're like, what do I do with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, think about the mantra of the church. No, it's bad. It's dangerous. It's this. Stay away from it. Oh, I hope you just have a blast on your wedding night. You're like, what am I walking into right now? Am I right or am I wrong? It's ridiculous what they say. Now, so feel free to quote me. I said this in the first service, and I think it's worth repeating uh, with online viewers. (laughs) Sex is dope. It's great. It's awesome. That'll be our next Heights shirt, okay? We got, <laughs> last week was modest is hottest, if you remember that. And this, I think, the t- I think Jeff will allow it. I think Pastor Jeff will allow it. Sex is like, what do, they, what do you guys believe over here? <laughs> oh, gosh. It is great. It's good. It's worthwhile. It's all the things. So why don't you do it outside of marriage? It took me until I was finally um, in ministry uh, before someone ever explained it to me. I didn't know. I just heard what everyone else heard, you know? Don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Whatever legalistic (laughs) nonsense they were pushing down our throat during that time, right? And so it is great. It is awesome. So why wouldn't you do it outside of the context of marriage? Well, I would say first, because of everything we just looked at. Because there is a bonding, and there is a knitting, and, and in that, it does unite you physically and psychologically. But there's also then a spiritual element that unites you to this other individual as well. And so I know it's weird to say, but the reality is sex isn't about you. It's about Jesus. You're like, I'm not walking in my bedroom thinking that. I get it. I know. But it is still true. And what I mean by that is that whenever you get to talk about marriage for a second, when you enter into the covenant of marriage, you enter into a covenant relationship. You think about a triangle where Jesus is at the head of that triangle and the spouses are down here at the bottom. And what you're called to do in marriage is to look up at Jesus and say, okay, who are you and what do you do? 
How have you responded to me for my salvation? And then you think about, all right, what do I know about who Jesus is as the perfect spouse, as the perfect savior, as the perfect son? Oh, he's eternally like wooing of me and he's joyful to see me and he responds through me through sacrificial obedience and sacrificial death and he resurrected so there's hope, so he's hopeful for me. And you, you look at Christ and you go, okay, that's true of you towards me now, Respond with that in mind to your significant other, listen to me, regardless of how they respond to you. Because if Jesus' love and sacrifice towards me and towards you is based off our merit, oh man, we ain't going to heaven, right? And so the gospel then, in light of the covenant of marriage, is you look to Christ and you say, what have you done towards me, for me, to win me over and have me be in relationship with you? And then boom, you pour that out on your significant other. Listen without any expectation of them. And when both parties do that, well, now you've got something to work with, yeah? And so that is the covenant of marriage. So whenever you come in and you say, well, we're gonna have sex outside of that covenant, if sex is about being like Christ, if it's about giving to the other and being sacrificial and submitting yourself over and devoting yourself over, if you come into it and you say, ah, oh, it's strictly physical and you're just looking for some form of physical release, then sex is no longer about your savior, it's about you. There's nothing self-sacrificial about that. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing celebratory in the gospel about that. Instead, it's just about you. And I want to tell you, you make a really bad head of the covenant. You make a really bad God, a domineering God, if that's true. If it's just physical and it's just for you, that's a misogynistic God. That's a patriarchal God in the negative sense of the term. It's a very bad God, isn't it? That's not what we see in Christ. We see that he's loving and gracious and kind and sacrificial and just, which means he's equal in his justice. And that's what he's poured out onto us first. And so if you're not coming together as one under the headship of Jesus, then you cannot appropriately represent the gospel. Therefore, someone who is not in covenant, that means someone who is single, that is, someone who is not married, that means you're also not married in your hearts, like some ridiculous thing someone comes up with. That means that, well, we've been together for seven years, so it's like kind of like we're married. No, it means you're a bum and you're not willing to put in the work to marry somebody. You're not married. You're still just single. That means if you are single, we clear on what single means now? Okay, if you are single, you cannot appropriately have sex with someone who you're not in covenant with because you're not actually walking out the gospel. It's not a legalistic thing. Don't have sex because sex is bad. No, it's you don't have sex because you're not actually responding to and celebrating the gospel with your spouse. And Lord knows, man, men will say just about and do just about anything. Women too, but it's easier to speak to men in this regard. Will do just about and say just about anything. I had a pastor once that would call it chore play, as he was saying. He's like, men get the dishes done just to get laid. That's called chore play, not foreplay. And it's true. And in that, I say it to make you laugh, but it's also true, is it not? True of mostly men, but women as well. And so to have sex with someone outside of the covenant of marriage, listen to me, is to look at that someone and say, I want the best of you, but I'm not willing to give you the best of me. I want what's most sacred about you, but I'm not willing to give you what's most sacred about me, which would be a covenantal relationship. I want what's best for you, but I'm not willing to give you the best of me, in light of this big idea for our series in that moment, what you're saying is, 
I want to offer you the kingdom apart from the king. We're going to do this thing outside of the covenant of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Say it like that. So if they wanted the best for you, let me be clear here. Uh, they'd put a ring on it. That, that's how you know they actually want what's best for you. Right? If they actually want what's best for you, then they're going to actually take that step forward and make that sort of a commitment to you as Christ has also committed himself to you. Again, that's not legalistic. That's a response to the gospel in light of that. Paul will say later, if you're burning with passion, it's actually better that you get married. And so I would give a small charge to men here that men, the majority of of singleness that happens. And statisticians would agree and researchers would agree that the majority of singleness that exists in our culture is because men are failing to be men. And because women, great job women, are predominantly better leaders than men. And so they got pick of the litter. They can be as picky as they want. And you should be, ladies, you should make him pine for every millisecond of your existence. For real. Like daughter to the king, do you hear me? Walk that out. But men are primarily the reason that singleness exists. And you can look across this. You can look historically. You can look uh, economically. You can look sociologically. You can look culturally. Where men fail to lead, that's where cultures fail. It it should not surprise us that Rome fail. If you look in our culture, if you look at any place in our area that has higher rates of violence and higher rates of poverty and higher rates of death, higher rates of suicide, higher rates of lower, in that case, lower socioeconomic status, if you look in those areas, there's an absence of men leading in the home. There is a real genuine call. Let me stop. You can see in our society where this is taking place. And so I'll say this lastly then for these dudes, especially as we're talking to singles. Um, what if you took all your time that you put in the Call of Duty or whatever you're playing now on PlayStation and you took um, all the efforts you have to put in to try to look at pornography for cheaper online and you took all the um, creativity it took to not get caught either playing games or looking at porn and you took all that and you just kind of bundle it up, man, and you focused it at somebody, a woman, Gosh, what kind of relationship would that be, ladies? He'd be full of creativity. He could take you out on dates for the low. Like, I'm saying you need to buy a Groupon if that's still a thing. I'm just saying that, like, it'd be a lot less expensive. You with me? Like, think about it. Is that not a man that you would find attractive? That he takes all that creativity and all that energy and all those finances, and he looks at you and he says, oh, it's worth dumping all of it out on you. Like, that's someone that you want to be with. And so it's, this is the call, the, the plea here is to just walk out the gospel in light of who Jesus is and not for some physical release because it's not going to go well for you based off all the data and based off the scriptures. The second thing then is for the single. Now, when he talks about the single, uh, in this context here, he's talking about uh, the widow first, singles in general, and he's going to talk about those who are uh, engaged. And so let's start with this, 1 Corinthians 7, 6. Now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried, the single, we're clear on that now, and the widows, that's those who have lost a spouse, or a widower, you could say, I say, that, I say that, it, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul starts off with his call to singles, uh, singles who are single, single who are widowed. So we can kind of hit 
uh, both of those. And so he says, as a concession, that is like as a strong apostolic recommendation and suggestion, he would say this to them. He said, I wish that all of you were as myself am. Again, this is a profound statement for Paul in his culture. That was not a worldview. That was not something that they would have thought about. Like singleness was not the norm for Paul's culture. I don't mean to be funny when I say this, but only prostitutes were single in his culture. Everyone else had to get married. You had to get married to be able to survive. You had to get married to have a retirement. You had to get married to have children to be seen as valuable in this culture. Everyone was married except for the prostitutes. So then for Paul to say it's better for you to remain single, his note, as a concession, right, would have put singleness then on the same playing field as marriage. And the church needs to hear that. Like he didn't exalt marriage up above singleness. He says, no, it's better that you remain actually as you are. And I think the church as a whole needs to hear that, that Paul speaks of singleness and marriage as if they are equal in this moment. Now, what he did not say was singleness is easy. He did not say that um, you should not desire this relationship. It's wrong of you to desire that relationship. He just says that they are equal. And what I'm saying is that we need to listen to the word of God and not the pressures that the world and the church puts on the single. Because those pressures are unfathomable at times. Some of you already think as singles that you'll finally have value if you can get into a relationship with someone. And what we've learned in the Imago Dei is you've already been given all the value you ever need in Christ, yeah? Some of you think, well, others will finally have value once they have acquired a relationship with someone else. I was talking with a single this last week that she was like, it wasn't until I got married that married couples even began to invite me out places, which means then that there are people in the church look down upon others because of their singleness in some ways. Some of, the people, some of you think that your relationship with Jesus will determine your relationship with someone else. And what I mean by that is a kind of a legalistic approach or a works righteous approach where you say, well, if I pray the right prayer and I do the right things and I show up to church on Sunday and I get my relationship right with God, well, then God will provide someone for me. But it's not a prosperity gospel. It's not do the, do the right things with God and God finally gives you all the gifts that you want. The real reality of the gospel is you may remain single until he calls you home. And in that moment, he's going to invite you into the most incredible and perfect wedding banquet of the lamb you could ever imagine, and you'll be in covenant with the perfect spouse forever. And it helps a little now, but I'm not going to distract from the reality that it, it also doesn't help all the way, does it? And so you have to watch because you do the right things does not mean that you will, in fact, get a spouse. And so the apostle Paul has said, and the word of God has said, that marriage and singleness are of equal status. They are of equal value with one another. And this is the first time that Paul would have, this is the first time this would have ever maybe even been heard. I'm going to say that Tim Keller said that, so that you're like, oh, dang, that's cool. He actually did. Tim Keller would say that there's not a religion, there's not a philosophy, there's not a framework, there's not a school of thought that places singleness and marriage on the same playing field. That there is not a philosophy framework or school of thought or religion that even exalts singleness. That is a strictly Christian idea. It is not a secular idea. And so to further press this out in my research on widows this week, I learned that for Paul's culture, as he's saying these things to them, the, the widow in his culture, that is someone who has lost a spouse in his culture, do you know, would have been fined after two years of singleness. 
After two years of singleness, the Roman Empire would have come in and started writing citations for their widow, for them being a widow. And the purpose of that was to force them into financial struggle so that they had to get married during that time. There was no exaltation for singleness. But man, the church, gosh, the early church during this time, as they looked at widows, they looked at singles specifically, as they looked at widows, they viewed being a widow as a high honor. And then the church herself would actually come around these widows and be the physical, like spiritual help and aid and financial help and aid for these singles. They actually, the church body, assumed the responsibility of that spouse until they either got married or they went home to be with Jesus. During COVID, I began to research a persecution of the early church as I was trying to decide how long would we stay closed. And as I got into some of the research of the early church, I believe it was Princeton University I was uh, reading uh, journal entries from. And Princeton University found uh, the original membership ledger for the Church of Rome. I've had this in my back pocket for like a year and a half, two years now. And so they had the membership ledger for the Church of Rome that Paul has written in the book that we can read in the Bible. And there was like, it's been a few years now, but there was like 105 or 107 members in the Church of Rome. And they cared for 1,500 widows and orphans. That is 15 people for every one member in the church that that one member was seeking out to love, to show honor to, to bring resources to, to provide food and finances for. James 1.27 would say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, that we visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. I've got to ask the question, right? How are we doing in honoring the widows that, that are in our presence today? I know with the, the orphan, we're doing as well as we can. On a given Sunday, there's 140 kids back there, and 30 of them will be foster and adopted kiddos. That's incredible. Like, that's unheard of. <laughs> Literally unheard of. That's profound, if I may. We also have a missional community that I know has recently adopted the assisted living home across the field, and they went just this week, and they played piano, and they took games, and they took their kiddos, and they just let them play and run around and have fun with the elderly, with the widows that are there. Praise the Lord for that. But I would ask two questions in this gathering. How do we do it honoring the widows in our church? And a more important question would be, as a widow or widower, do you feel honored in this church? Is worth having discussion. Do you have a missional community that has come around you and loved you well? MC leaders, you need to be mindful of your family, yes? How do we do it loving and honoring the widows and the widowers that are here now? Paul says, if you've lost a spouse, man, I can't fathom what that would be like. I, I dread that day. Many of you live that reality. But the Apostle Paul says you are to be honored, that you are to be loved, and that you deserve having the church body to come around you and be the hands and feet that once used to walk through your home. That's a high call for us, church. We should not take that lightly. Amen? He says of singles in general, there is no pressure to marry. Live as you are. Be devoted, he's saying then, to the Lord. Now, verses 17 through 24, Paul begins to tell people to remain as they are. And so we bump down then to verse 25 when he starts to talk to engaged singles. And so he says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I see engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. This is important. I think that in view of the what? The 
You gotta like, like you're in the room with me, please. I think that in view of the present. Oh, okay, there she is, okay. It is good for a person to remain as he is, okay? I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, uh, you have not sinned, of course. And if a betrothed, engaged woman marries, of course, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry uh, will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. It is not easy to read, I imagine, as a single, but it is the word. And so Paul gives us a second concession here, or a second suggestion here, and he says, hey, uh, if you're married, stay that way. If you're single, uh, stay that way. That's a good word of wisdom right there from the apostle, yeah? If you're married, church, stay that way. If you're not married, you might want to consider staying that way. Again, though, what is he doing? He's further pushing this reality that both marriage and singleness are equal, is what he's laying out for us. They have equal value. And he says, quote, in light of the present distress. That's a very important line because then that has to begin to shift everything that, every way that we receive what the Apostle Paul is saying then has to come through that lens of this is a concession, not a command. And I say it to you in light of the current circumstance. And so during this time, if you think about it with me, what's happening to the Christians? Oh, they're being persecuted beyond belief. Like they're having stakes literally rammed through the backside of their body to come out their mouth and head and placed on the side of the road and lit ablaze to, to light the entrance and the exits to cities. That's what they were doing to Christians during this time. Also, historically speaking, we know that there was a famine that had hit the land in this territory. So then there's an absence of food. And so what Paul is saying then, in light of the present distress, right, as a concession, not as a command, you might be single on Tuesday, engaged on Thursday, married on Friday, and a widow on Sunday. Like you have no idea what's going to happen to you right now, right, in light of the present distress. And so that's why he lays out something. If you're married, stay that way. If you're single, then you should stay that way. So the first thing that Paul says then, in light of those things, in light of the present distress and as a reality, your singleness will actually save you from some of the worldly troubles. He says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And he says, I would spare you that. It doesn't downplay the reality that you desire that. Gosh, some of you in the room would give anything to have the same worldly troubles that I have of a spouse and kids. He's not saying to run from the desire. He's not saying that it makes it easier. He's just saying this is the reality of the situation. And so he continues in verse 29. He says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, quite literally. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is in fact passing away. And so Paul is saying you are literally living between the times, Christians, to these Christians, and as we are by extension. But he's literally saying you're living between the times or you're living between the ages. And so there's this, there's this reminder here that Jesus has come and he's walked in perfection. and He's went to the cross for uh, for sin and atoned for sin and he's resurrected and he sent the Holy Spirit and he's birthed the church and he's saying all of that is happening. Live your life as if all of that has actually happened in your life. And then he's saying quite literally the, the reality alongside the present crisis, he's saying it, it would be better for you to just be concerned with the gospel and with the mission than anything else. What is this a call to then? For singles, also as married, but what's it a call to as singles? It's a call to radical like contentment in Christ. It's called to a radical, I wouldn't even say radical, a biblical devotion to Jesus first among, before everything else. 
Before you ever consider a spouse, before you ever consider a job, before you even consider your own emotions, he's saying, be devoted to Christ. He said, are you mourning? Oh, then look forward to Christ's return, for he will come and he will wipe away every tear. Are you concerned with business? Oh, focus on the mission. Do you not see what the Father has called us to do in Christ? Deal as if you had no dealings with business whatsoever. Do you have a wife? Live as if you have no wife. That's not a command to some of you to be a bum. He's saying, no, in light of the gospel. Do you have a wife? Yes and amen. Focus on the mission. Focus on discipleship. Walk out the gospel. It's not a call to abandonment. It's not a call to misogyny. Misogyny. It's a call to be devoted to and committed to, I would say, enthralled with Jesus. It's a call to get to the feet of Jesus and look at him. We have a saying. We say, do you find Jesus useful or do you find him beautiful? This is a call to find Jesus beautiful, radically beautiful, long before he provides anything other for you than your salvation. It is a call to devotion, singles. That's what he's getting to. Thanks, one of you. Thanks. I don't know who it was, but I recognize two voices, and I love you both, so thank you. There's a call to look to Jesus coming in a way, listen to me now, that reshapes every single desire you could ever fathom. That's the call. To focus on that relationship over any other relationship. To focus on being the church over any sort of offspring. To be devoted to Christ. How do we know? Because the good apostle presses it further, and he tells us this in 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Listen how true this is. What I love about the word. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, as he should be. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Amen, men? And the unmarried or the betrothed woman, the engaged woman, is, should be, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, how to walk out purity, he's saying. But the married woman, ladies, is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, we could probably insert kids and everything else, Yes? I say this, listen to him, just pastor in this church. Listen to him. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The Apostle Paul is an incredible pastor, yes? So Paul says There's a, there is a gift in your singleness, okay? And you gotta watch, I gotta watch especially as I'm the one communicating how we approach that. Because the gift in singleness does not mean you have been gifted more time. That's not accurate. We have the same amount of time. You just get to use your time a little differently. Uh, the gift in here mentioned is, is not your singleness. I would not say singleness. In, in, in context here, the gift is not singleness. The gift is not being single. The gift is freedom from worldly anxieties. Again, some that you may desire. I don't want to downplay that, but the gift is a freedom from worldly anxieties. It's a gift to be devoted to the Lord with less distractions. That is the gift that he mentions here. And so I haven't been single in a very long time, but I spent this week researching alongside singles. Uh, we have a powerhouse woman in our church that was single until the last few years until she was 29 years old. And so Jody Sager, if you know her, did a dynamite job at the marriage retreat. Amen. She crushed that thing. She emceed it. She did awesome. I was talking to her about this, and she was single. To quote her, she was super single for 29 years. And so she didn't date anyone for 29 years. And this handsome man named Eric walked in, and she said, I'll take that one. Okay? And so now she's married. She's been engaged, married, and has a kiddo. But she was talking about just, she was like, Corey, just going on mission trips alone around the world. 
She's like, when I was single, I had no worries. Like if, you know, if I died, I would go and be with the Lord. I didn't have to worry about money. I didn't have to worry about schedule. I didn't have to worry about kids. I didn't have to worry about being committed to a man or leaving my husband at home. And she said, I want you to know the moment that we got engaged, I went on my first mission trip and all I could think about was I want to be with him. I want to get back home. And she's like, my interests were immediately divided. So quote, she said something along the lines of, this is not something that they want to hear as singles. And yet it is biblical. That there is a reality here that the Apostle Paul has. And so I don't want to downplay that because I cannot fully connect whenever I have a woman that's just recently married and had a baby in the last couple years. Says, no, this is true. And so the gift here is the freedom to devote yourself utterly and totally, completely unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that you have more time, but you have different time for sure. You don't have any more time being single. Hopefully you're filling your time and living on mission and making disciples. So I would ask the question, how are you managing your devotion to God? And I would also say that your discontent that you may feel as a single may be fueled by your lack of devotion unto the Lord, yeah? Your calling is no different than the calling of someone who is married. Your calling as a single is to first and foremost dedicate your devotion and your time to God. Now, I also think it's important to note for the sixth time, I know some of you wish you had some of the anxieties that we get to share in as married couples. Some of you long for a spouse. Imagine some of you long for children. You long for those troubles. I want to encourage you in saying those, those desires are good and right in light of the Imago Day, Like the Lord has put those and placed those into you. You also, some of you don't desire that. And in some ways that could be a gift from the Lord that you do not desire that. I also don't want to downplay the moment in light of widows in the text that I have no idea what it's like to lose a spouse. That's my worst nightmare, that and kids. So I don't know what it's like to go into a missional community or come into a time like this and hear a harder sermon directed at me and not have somebody be able to put their hand on the small of my back or reach over and put their hand on my hand. I don't know what it's like to go to bed at night and where there used to be a, wool, a warm divot in the side of the bed Now it's flat and cold. I have no idea what that's like. But what I do know is that what you desire the most still reveals who you're devoted to and what you're devoted to. And there is a very real Jesus that can come alongside and he can make up the difference of all of that for you. And so the last point then is the hope. And I'm I'm done if the team wants to come up. We're going to land the plane here. Uh, There's only one narrative that addresses both sex and singleness in an appropriate way, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ because it speaks to everything. And so to kind of further push that out, I want want you to recall with me the story of Jesus and the woman at the well that's found in John chapter 4. Jesus walks into the Samaritan territory that is a Jew he's not supposed to be in. He sees a woman out gathering water in the middle of the day because she's ashamed, she's embarrassed to be out there by herself. So Jesus is sitting there, she comes up, and uh, he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And she said, you know, well, why would I ask you for water? And he said, well, I have living water that will lead you to thirst no more. And she says, well, good sir, where do I get this water? And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, repent and profess faith in me for your salvation. That is true. When she says, well, sir, where do I get this water? He says, let's talk about your singleness and your sex life. Because uh, you currently have five, du- you have five dudes that you've been sleeping with. You should have married one of them. They weren't your husband's. And now you have another man that you're sleeping with that you're also not married to. And she says, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. Isn't it interesting that whenever it comes to where do we find this living water, 
Jesus, as he approaches this woman, says, let me tell you what you're actually devoted to. And there's only one place to get this living water, and that's by transitioning that devotion from the things of the world, singleness and sex, to me. And so as Jesus sits there with her, right, he's going to imagine sharing the gospel. She comes to faith. This is a beautiful moment that we get to see in Scripture where the unclean is made clean and the dead has been brought to life. And the only way that it's possible that Jesus can actually meet you in your physical desires, your emotional desires, your spiritual desires, the only way that Jesus can meet you even in your relational desires is because he walked in perfection and he goes to the cross for you. And like, I don't want to keep that on the bottom shelf. Like, let's raise it up a bit and go, whenever Jesus went to the cross, do you not know that the, he forewent relationship with the Father while he was on the cross so that we could have relationship with him? Like, whenever Jesus goes to the cross and dies and he resurrects and he sends the Holy Spirit, he has to die first, thus breaking the bond with his Father. Like, think about that's crazy. He had a bond with his father from the beginning of the beginning. It's all that he knew. And yet whenever our sin comes into Christ, there's this moment, just when a, a moment in the Trinity where the father has to turn his face away. And so everything that you desire relationally, all the bonding that you would desire, all the physical attention that you would desire, all the spiritual enlightening that you would want for crying out loud, Jesus had that with the father. And he goes, I'm gonna forego all that to redeem them. The book of Hebrews that we're going to get into next week, it says the joy that was set before Jesus that led him to the cross was you. His utter and complete devotion to see sinners be made saints. That is the gospel. Everything that you desire and everything that you fear losing, Jesus had and willingly lost for your salvation. And that is the gospel. And it is beautiful. And it is right. For those of you that are in the room, please stand with me as I usher us through communion and offering. Uh, if you like to tithe during this time, there's boxes on either side of the stage. And for those of you that give online, thank you for giving online. Uh, every week together at Heights Community, we take communion together uh, as a family. We don't do this as a religious event. It's a redemptive event. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Heights uh, to do this. Uh, we do ask that you have professed faith in that gospel, that you have looked and seen Jesus' perfection and his death in your place and his resurrection and that you have stepped into the, the bonding, eternal, beautiful relationship uh, with Jesus and that he is yours and you are in fact his. And if you can confidently say yes to that, uh, then you can partake in this meal. And what's beautiful about communion, church, is that communion is a foreshadowing of what's called the messianic banquet. Uh, communion is the foreshadowing of a great, the greatest wedding feast that we will ever experience for all of our days. And it just goes on and on and on and on into eternity. The, the, the beauty of communion is that it reveals that all of your deepest longings are met in Christ forevermore. And so as you come forward in a moment, you'll see some bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for you. Uh, you simply take a piece of that bread and pull it out and you dip it into the cup, which represents Christ's blood spilled for you on your behalf as your substitute. Uh, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul continues and he says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me just remind you for just a moment, church, that 
when he returns, he collects us as a bride. So whether you're single now or married now, the reason there is no marriage in the kingdom of God is because the perfect spouse comes and unites us to him forevermore. Uh, This meal is a foreshadowing of that. Come forward when you're ready.